0: Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Manish Jain. He is the CEO of Mervy. Manish, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure nice to be here. So, as I do with all my guests, I like to get a little bit of background uh, perspective, um, especially you know, as we talk about the area of focus here. So, if you would share a little bit of your journey to this point in your career and how you arrived
1: here. Yeah, so I'm a scientist by training. uh, And 20 years ago, I got quite fascinated by uh, what was then the early uh, stages of the Human Genome Project. Because it seemed like the first time we were going to start to understand the underlying basis of human biology and potentially be able to treat disease and conditions. So that was the beginning of my journey. Uh, I was very fascinated by how we could take the science and bring it uh, to practical applications that could impact people's lives. And so that's led me on an entrepreneurial journey in the last 20 years to build several companies that have developed products in the sequencing space and the applications in in oncology and most recently pregnancy health. Um, I think if we look back at the revolutions in the last decades uh, that we've had in tech, that's been really um, facilitating an understanding of information and how that moves. And for us, we still lack this fundamental understanding of how our biology works. And so, to be at the doorstep of uh, being able to understand that and use that for benefit was uh, just very compelling for me, and and that's uh, the story of my career.
0: Interesting. So, before we dive in, I think it's worth sort of spending a little bit of time since you've been in that space and you know focused on that. And you know, my recollection of the genome project, particularly as we sort of got to the point of you know the full sequence, we had this you know took billions of dollars and, you know, all the cost issues separate, but from a, a content and science understanding uh, perspective, one of the things that I recall very strongly at the time was, oh, we found it, but 95% of it is junk. Do you remember that? Do you have a recollection of how you sort of perceived that, um, you know, as you were in this space?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, And there was many quips about it. I think a lot of people uh, said at some point that those who call it junk DNA are junk scientists. (laughs) 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 I have not heard
0: that, but that's unfair because I think a lot of us did because we didn't, we just followed the crowd,
1: but keep going. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. So, well, what was interesting is I think we, we learned how much we don't know in the early days. And so the human genome, the first blueprint was supposed to unravel all of disease. And it turned out to just tell us, well, that's just, what we have a blueprint for one person. So how is each person different? And so we continued on that journey. I think it's truly the century of biology. And so it's not one project or, or you know, a space of one decade that is going to unravel the complexity of human biology. But I think you can just start to see the advances we've made in the last few decades. So I think take oncology, for example. You know, In the early 90s, it was chemo for every cancer. And that's just what it was. And then we started to understand, starting with breast cancer, that, well, actually that condition has multiple subtypes and, and those are molecular subtypes and each one should be treated quite differently. So today, when you get diagnosed, if you're unfortunate to be diagnosed with breast cancer, fortunately, they're very powerful tools that tell you what type of breast cancer it is and tailor the treatment according to that molecular condition. And I think that's a major advance. We've been able to make other major advances in infectious disease with vaccines and a lot of the mRNA vaccines recently. So, our focus is really to try to apply some of the same tools to expand the knowledge base in pregnancy health. Uh, so, surprisingly, uh, if we look back a few years in 2018 when we started MIRBY, we realized that it was really a big black box and, and it is so today. But I think there's the opportunity to illuminate that. How does pregnancy development happen, what is development of normal pregnancy, and what, where do we go off course sometimes to more complicated pregnancies with conditions like preterm birth and preeclampsia. So I think, I think the bigger picture, we're just at the doorstep of starting to understand this, and it might take us uh, some decades to really fully unravel all of biology, but I think we have very powerful tools now um, in the Human Genome Project and those technologies that kind of allow us to read biology and convert it to digital form. And then the other set of powerful technologies like machine learning that allow us to take that digital information and make sense out of that, find patterns.
0: Yeah, so th- th- there's a lot to to unpack there. Um, you know, not least of all, your point, I extremely eloquently stated that, you know, when we sequenced one genome, we had one genome, but there was all this uproar about, wow, we've got a genome, but of course, nothing to compare it to, which I think is... One of the, the most important points and obviously the cost and the decline uh, in you know, processing needs allows us to get to more of it, you know opens up the doors. One of the things that I would suggest, um, you know you talk decades, my hope is, I think a little bit faster than that, just based on the recent pandemic where we really pushed the extremes of this processing that I think will maybe speed things up. One of the key things that I think is important to understand, and, you know, it relates back to this sort of junk DNA concept, we've understood now that that impacts the, the expression of genes. And I know we're going to dive into, you know, what Murvy does and how we do it. Let, let's understand that first, because I think there's, you know, some important points relative to that. So would you explain what mervi is and, and how it works?
1: Yes, definitely. I think for every field, there is a point in time where where it's ready for a breakthrough or or to really change the status quo. And, and we really believe that pregnancy health and maternal health is, is there today, partly because I think this era of declining maternal health has come to a head. And if you look at the news that's been out there with preventable, 80% of maternal deaths are preventable. That's some information from the CDC. If you look at the last 15 years, we have doubled the rate of hypertensive or blood pressure disorders in pregnancy. So some of these things are really coming to an head in the area which is not just a point in time, but impacts certainly the whole lifetime for the baby and a large part of the lifetime for the mom. So if you talk about lifetime impact of disease, this may be one of the areas that has the greatest lifetime impact. So it really compelled us to try to see what we could do urgently in this area. So some of the tools that have been applied in the oncology space are, are looking at uh, genome-wide patterns of changes that could be predictive disease. And the way you do that is, uh, thankfully, to the declining in costs in, in genome sequencing, we're able to look at a lot of sequencing data for many individuals. And it's that combination of a comprehensive view of what's happening in the biology across thousands and thousands of individuals, that ultimately gives you a power to find reliable patterns. And so what we are doing is really using the Mirvi RNA platform. This is something that was developed at uh, Stanford and Steve Quake lab over, over Steve Quake's lab over many years. It's the first time that we're able to actually start to look at the underlying biology. And so what happens is as you have the developmental processes in pregnancy, um, there's a lot of changes in the uterus the cervix, the placenta, and of course, the fetus. And so the combination of that molecular signature is really the RNA messages that are changing and being communicated back and forth. So we take a simple blood sample from the mom, and through that simple blood sample, we're able to tap in to this changing biology and to find patterns that are indicative of a normal pregnancy progression and then other aberrant patterns that are indicative of potential complications to come. And the really exciting thing is that we're able to do this about three months in advance of the symptoms. And so today's standard of care has really been driven uh, by symptoms presenting themselves and then the physician doing the best they can, often in a crisis mode, like if the baby is going to be born preterm. But imagine if you could uh, identify these symptoms and signs, sorry, not symptoms, but the underlying biological signs. months in advance now for the first time you can start to take preventive steps and try to make a plan um, treat the condition and hopefully prevent them and so that's really a big step forward in the field to be able to do that approach and it's only possible because we can start to tap into the underlying biology early in pregnancy
0: so i think it's important before we sort of dive into some of the benefits um to to separate out some of the science because i think people get confused when we talk sequencing, I think for, for the general understanding, it's, Oh, I'm going to sequence you. So I get your DNA. Mm-hmm. And you're actually talking about something different. And, and that's where it's important because some of this expression of genes is where this is actually demonstrated in the body and you're picking up those signals. And I think this is important to understand. So. Make sure that what I'm I'm saying is correct. So when you take these samples from the mothers, you're not sequencing the DNA. Which you know people get confused and say, "Well, I am I am I a product of my genes?" So I, it's a no choice, no problem. This is something slightly different. You're looking at, at at a different element. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, it's it's very different. And thank you for bringing that up. So DNA is what you have from your mom and dad. And, and by and large, it's not changing in, in every cell of your body and throughout your lifetime. It's, it's static. Um, it is helpful for certain things in pregnancy. So in the last 10 years, we've been able to have these non-invasive prenatal tests that look at changes in chromosomes. So if chromosome 21, for instance, you have three copies instead of two copies, then you get down. your baby has Down syndrome. And so that's something we've been able to test from just a blood sample. But those conditions are what we call genetic And there's not much you can do about them. They're just present in your DNA. So they're Mm. static, and it's essentially you have what you have. What we're doing is something very different. We're looking at RNA. So what is RNA? Well, if you have the same DNA throughout your body, how is any organ different from the other organ? And how are you aging, and how are things changing throughout your lifetime? Because the DNA is the DNA. Well, the most important difference is the DNA gets converted to RNA And that is very different in every cell. And it's very different at every point in time. And so the whole dynamic nature of our lives, the development of tissues and uh, all the changes through our lifetime are really mediated through RNA. So you start with the same DNA blueprint, but it gets converted to different levels of different genes expressed at different points in time. And that's really what drives all our biological development. And so in pregnancy, you might imagine that there's a pretty, it's probably the period of most rapid development for human beings. And so it is of course then mediated by these RNA changes. And each pregnancy is different. So you could have the same parents, so theoretically very similar DNA, but the RNA as it's expressed can be very different and be different at different points in time. So that's really what we're tapping into is, is these RNA changes. Now, one of the most exciting things, of course, is that because it's not static, it's dynamic, you could potentially understand the underlying biology and then try to prevent the conditions because it's not static. So just like it's off going off course, you could potentially correct it. And a lot of the work that has happened in the field with RNA-based therapeutics is very promising. So I think that's what's very interesting about this area. It's really a new frontier where we're looking at the dynamic changes that lead to the disease course and the potential of having precision medicine to try to tackle that and prevent it.
0: So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and today I'm talking to Manish Jain. He is the CEO of Mervi. We were just talking about the differences between DNA, RNA, messenger RNA, and you know the, the enormous progress that's taken place in terms of sequencing, which is not just about that sort of static sequence of your genome, Um, but actually the expression of that and the way that it's expressed. And I think if I sort of encapsulate what you just described, no matter what's going on, you have multiple different expressions of messenger RNA that you're able to measure as part of this whole process. And it's that information that Mervy has now sort of taken and is offering some insight that I think is quite extraordinary, right? So... Um, tell us what you did and you know what you're starting to see.
1: Yeah. So one of the first things we did was to make sure you can actually measure RNA reliably because it is it is new technology and it's it's more subtle than DNA. And, and that's why the development has taken you know about a decade longer than it did for DNA. So the way we did that is of course, do a lot of work in the lab, but then very quickly start to test on uh, on samples, blood samples that were collected retrospectively through collaborations with many academic medical centers. And that really then started to establish that we could reliably detect RNA. So we published a paper in Nature uh, earlier this year, in January, 22. And one of the main things it showed was that for normal pregnancies, there were predictable patterns of RNA. So what that means is we looked at thousands of women. In fact, I believe that study was about 2,500 samples from women across the world eight sites in the US, a couple in Europe, and one in Africa. So we wanted to make sure these studies are very diverse, so the results are broadly applicable. And what that showed us is that, uh, in fact, the RNA changed very predictably in the course of normal pregnancy, meaning that we could take a blood sample at a certain point in time, and just by looking at the RNA from that blood sample, we could date the pregnancy, how far you are in the pregnancy. So that's pretty remarkable. That's very comforting because it shows us that there is a baseline pattern that, that determines the development of the baby and the changes for the mom. So now you can start to ask the question, okay, if there are deviations from that pattern, what does that mean? And so one of the things we showed in that same paper was if you took samples from moms who went on to develop preeclampsia three months later and compared them to blood samples from moms who had a normal pregnancy, we found specific gene patterns that were distinct and different in those moms who went on to develop preeclampsia. So one might call that a signature for preeclampsia. And then we went on later in the year to do a study, uh, again, with hundreds of women and showed the same thing was possible for preterm birth. So premature birth is when the baby is born before 37 weeks of gestation. And and really fascinating in that particular paper in in the AJOG uh, or the so-called Gray Journal, was that we could distinguish between the patterns that were for very early preterm birth and versus early preterm birth. And so even within the condition, uh, this is very exciting, even within the condition that historically has just meant the baby is born early, it has not meant due to what reason. Now we are starting to unravel a little bit of that biology because I think the belief in the field, most experts in the fields believe that we will be a time soon where we can take a condition like preterm birth or preeclampsia and identify it by their molecular subtypes. So you might be able to treat them differentially. It's very analogous to what happened in the 1990s with breast cancer, right? It was one disease, one condition. And then we started to figure out, oh, it's actually two or three different conditions that can be treated quite differently and much more effectively. So we're not there yet. But we are on the doorstep of starting to find that level of resolution of some of the major complications in pregnancy.
0: You know, I, I think great description of that. I think very helpful in terms of understanding one of the uh, you know key points that sort of arises in my mind about all of this. And it was true with oncology. I think we're going to have to develop a whole new terminology or methodology to categorize disease. Because we've gone based on location in the body, which actually is starting to make less and less sense. It's more at this molecular level. Um, I'm just in the process of reading the the Song of the Cell book by uh, Siddharth Mukherjee, which is exposing a lot of this in the oncology space, amongst others. Extraordinarily exciting. And you talk about three months ahead of time. So there's obviously some point in the pregnancy where you say this is maybe the optimum, or maybe this is a measurement that takes place sequentially that gives you those biomarkers. The extraordinary point here is that now you've got some opportunity for early intervention, which is saving money. It's better for everybody, you know, that just. Awful statistic that you cited at the beginning, you know, this enormous maternal deaths, um, you know, poor outcomes. We can actually head off. And that's in the US, to be clear. (laughs) When you think about this elsewhere, there's huge. Tell us a little bit about how this is enacted and how we get this, you know, distributed out.
1: Yeah. So we're still in the development stage. I think um, we feel, um, I think, an urgency to try to get this to market as soon as possible but I think also the responsibility to do the most rigorous science because it is such enormous uh, potential impact. And so we're doing a very large clinical study with thousands of women collected all across uh, multi-center trial, very diverse study across the U.S. And the idea of that is to just validate some of the findings that we have discovered to date. And once we do that formal clinical validation, then we'll be ready to bring this to market. I think what's very interesting is... um, just taking the physician's perspective and the mom's perspective on this approach. You know, physicians are doing the best they can, right? But they're limited today in two ways. One is they don't have the tools to be able to predict disease. It's really been very symptom-driven throughout the decades. In fact, I think some of the things are surprising but make sense in context. So the current prenatal visit paradigm, the 12 to 14 visits is from the 1930s and it hasn't changed. And the reason there's fewer visits early on, and many more visits towards the end, is the symptoms of conditions like preeclampsia often showed up later in pregnancy. And so they wanted to catch the symptoms, but yet it's really the blood pressure measurement or the symptomatic measurement is really in those few visits, you know, a week or two apart. It's not real time. And so I think that's a big shift that would be very welcome uh, to physicians to have a tool. The other thing is it's really not possible to educate everybody. On everything that can happen in pregnancy, because it's the long list, and it's a time where it can be an overwhelming time for families. But if you knew somebody who was at risk for one condition, you could certainly go much deeper in educating on that particular condition. So they would be aware of the signs and symptoms. So, for instance, in our survey, it's it's really um, this was the survey of a thousand women, newly pregnant or uh, have been through pregnancy recently. Ninety-one percent said they wanted more information about the pregnancy and about uh, the risk of developing conditions. And that there was this would really help them make a better plan rather than just cause anxiety because that's been one of the historical uh, kind of concerns like, well, is it just gonna cause unnecessary anxiety? And most moms, 91% say they it'll actually help them make a better plan. The other thing that's very interesting is I think a large majority of women said they understood the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia. But if you actually go through what the signs and symptoms are it's only nine percent who can identify every single one of them and so this just speaks to the education gap because again you can't educate everybody on everything but if you knew you were at risk for one condition you could certainly go quite deep and make sure they understand a lot more about that yeah so so I think I, yeah
0: it, it, clearly exciting opportunity but there's still some work to do you know lots of respect for you. Um, you know, focusing on making sure that the science is right. I think you don't want to get this wrong. You want it to roll out. But you're yep. talking about a change in the prenatal sequencing at this point. I, and that's a poor choice of words because you think DNA. I'm, I'm talking timing yes. of appointments. And, um, you know, so big changes that would contribute to essentially, I'm going to call them biomarkers for, mm-hmm. for a sort of generic term that would allow you to sort of guide care in a very broad sense across essentially everybody with a simple blood test. Is, is that true? Is that
1: where you see this going? That's right. Yeah, we see this as a change in uh, standard of care. So very quickly, I think just through the COVID era, like in many areas of medicine, there has been a revisiting of this 12 to 14 in-person visits to have a combination of in-person and remote. So that's, it's great to see the field evolving uh, due to necessity. I think what this would do is give you another tool, very powerful tool where the disease biology that often starts in the first trimester, we can measure early in the second trimester and give you that sort of three months advance notice before any symptoms to try to prevent them. Uh, So yes, it would become a pretty powerful tool that we see as a standard of care, new standard of care, that would allow you for the first time to go from kind of reactive symptom-based medicine to much more proactive and preventive medicine.
0: You know, I I know it's hard at this point. You've obviously got two extremely important markers. I imagine that there's potential for much more than that in the future as you sort of gather more data and analyze more sort of
1: outcomes. Is that a
0: a fair assessment?
1: Yes, there's, uh, I think, so many of these conditions that we have to address. So we talked about preterm birth and preeclampsia but there's also growth restriction of the baby. There are several placental mediated disorders, and then there's also uh, gestational diabetes. And all of that is still just looking within pregnancy. So if we look a little beyond that, we know that some of these conditions create a lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke for the mom and developmental disorders for for the baby. So beyond pregnancy, we could actually then start to look at some of these markers, which are potentially predictive of what's gonna happen later in the lifetime. and then. Imagine if you could start to prevent some of those conditions. It would really change um, dramatically. I think the lives of many people.
0: I, I think really exciting times. Uh, you know, tremendous opportunity. I, I'm, you know, hopeful that we can accelerate this through the process of science. Go through the appropriate measurements. But all of this opportunity, not just within pregnancy, but the expansion of this capability is really going to change the way that we sort of interact with our patients. And I, I think ultimately change the, the grammar and the vocabulary that we use in, in medicine. So uh, exciting times. Unfortunately, as we do each and every week, um, we've run out of time. Just remains for me to uh, thank you for uh, joining me on the show. Manish, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you, Nick. appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at Nick one on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution.